Got a favorite Kate Bush song that you just want to leave a couple of thoughts on? Well, you can call our hotline at any time and your thoughts might be played on a future episode. That number is 1-757-349-6886. That's 1-757-349-6886. Hope to hear from you soon. Strange Phenomena now has a Patreon page. If you would like to support the show, then you can visit patreon.com slash Podcast to see what wonderful rewards we're offering for your support of the show. Thank you. And now, on with the show. It's because my opinion on it did sh- shift um, through time. Uh, uh, from the first time listening to it, through, through, uh, like a lot of the tracks from, from, uh, from that album, uh, it's uh, quite experimental. Even even for Kate Bush, it's not something usual, not usual territory. So I don't know if I would say that it's one of my favorite songs. I do think it's one of her most interesting songs to discuss and dissect because of like the political complexity of it. I think that's fascinating to look at how someone with her perspective um, could both like take on the really lofty goal in this song of um, critiquing um, the colonialism and imperialism and warmongering of the British Empire um, and, uh, you know, do some some really incredible work um, in like blending all different sounds and musical tendencies while also, um, I think, reproducing colonialism in the lyrics and the very music of the work that that she's creating. The music of Kate Bush. I'm Cecily Link, and this week we're going to be talking about the sixth song from Kate Bush's fourth album, The Dreaming, called The Dreaming. Welcome to the first episode of the second side of the Dreaming album. Time to flip the album over. On now to the title track. And as you could probably hear in my voice, I am really excited about this episode because we've got three guests for our episode this week. So yay! We've got Tomer Feiner, who you've heard from before on previous episodes. We've got a first time guest on the show named Liza Barrett. She is a longtime Cape fan from Boston, Massachusetts and got in contact with me on Twitter. And most importantly, well, a couple months ago, I put out a call on Twitter saying, hey, does anybody know other people who are more familiar with Aboriginal culture? Because I felt like for this song, and it would be Nice to have somebody on the show who knows a lot more than I do. So a good friend of the show, Christine Kelly, reached out to a friend of hers who she said, oh, she's more familiar with the culture. She would probably really want to come on the show. And I got to talk with her. So you're going to get to hear later from Lizzie Orley. 
She's a Gamilaroi woman who works for a Brisbane-based Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community radio station called 98.9 FM. And when I got to talk to her about Kate's song and Aboriginal culture and history, oh, she had a lot to say about this song. And so it was what you're going to hear later is part of a much longer conversation that I had with her that will be available on my Patreon page. So if you go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Kate Bush podcast, you can sign up today. And next week, I'm going to release the full interview. But we're going to hear a snippet of that later. And I'm super excited about that because she had some wonderful insights into Aboriginal culture and how it relates to this song. And also, this is going to be a long episode. I'm just going to warn you, I tried to keep this to under an hour, but there is so much to discuss in this song. It's not just the production, but also the lyrics and getting into the theme of the song, which you'll get to hear a lot from our two guests here. So without further ado, let's get into the discussion of the song. We're going to get to hear from Tomer. We're going back and forth between Tomer and Liza, and then we'll get to hear later from Lizzie Orley. So here we go. Uh, I'm Toma Fina. I live in Israel. Hi, my name is Liza. I have, yeah, I live in Boston. Um, I've been a Kate Bush fan since high school. Um, I absolutely love her. Um, and I have been listening to the show for a little bit. And The Dreaming is my favorite album. <laughs> Yay, and it also happens to be my favorite album, too. Yay! <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so what is it about The Dreaming title track? that makes it one of your favorite songs? Great. I So I don't know if I would say that it's one of my favorite songs, um, but I love every song on the album, which is one of my favorite. But I, I do think it's one of the most like interesting songs, one of her most interesting songs to discuss and dissect because of like the political complexity of it. Um, I think the song represents like some of Kate Bush's strongest musical tendencies um and some of her weakest political tendencies as a as a lyricist and a a world builder in her songs um and i think that's fascinating to look at how someone with her perspective um could both like take on the really lofty goal in this song of um critiquing Um, the colonialism and imperialism and warmongering of the British empire um, and, uh, you know, do some, some really incredible work um, in like blending all different sounds and musical tendencies while also um, I think reproducing colonialism in the lyrics and the very music of the work that, that she's creating. Um, So I think that is, exciting to dig into um because it's we can we can adore her as a musician and also kind of learn from where she um where she slips up as a as a white woman living in the heart of the empire indeed indeed so how did you even first hear of kate bush because i always like asking people where they first heard of her and how long they've been a fan and all that yeah, it's a it's a lovely story. I um so I, I grew up in New Hampshire and um some of my friends and I who are still very very close with um I'm still very close with one of them I think um talked to you about coming onto the show named named Cassie. 
um, yes. some other episode. Yeah, so both of us were uh, in the same British literature class in maybe our sophomore year of high school. Um, and our teacher, uh, Mr. Brewer, um, was English. Um, and he loved Kate Bush. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so when we didn't have time to read the book Weathering Heights in our class, um, he, of course, said, it's okay, you don't need to read it. We can just watch this music video. Um, and he, <laughs> and he played, us, played us the Weathering Heights video, of course, actually not the red dress version, um, which I later learned is the more famous one, but the white dress version, which still remains my favorite Weathering Heights video. It's a little more... It's a little a little weirder, I think, <laughs> than the mm-hmm. than the red dress one. And everybody in the class was like, "What is this? This is so strange." <laughs> um, it, myself included, I was like, "What is this weird thing that my uh, teacher, Mr. Brewer?" listens to. Um, and he told us about, you know, going to see her on the tour of life, how she was so transformative in his life. And we kind of made fun of it for him. But then like me and Cassie and a couple other friends found that Weathering Heights just stuck in our head. We Mm -hmm. couldn't stop singing it. So we downloaded some other of her music from the kick inside and eventually borrowed a Kate Bush documentary on VHS from Mr. Brewer. And that was where I first heard the dreaming um, mm-hmm. in the when they were telling the story of Kate Bush's career. And uh, that um, and I think as much as the music on um, the kick inside really intrigued me um, at a young age, it was the dreaming that totally hooked me. I was I just had never heard anything like it. Um, probably the song, the dreaming was the first one that I heard in the documentary. Um, I was like, what is this? Is this pop music? Is this classical music? What is going on? I Mm. have to hear more. It sort of disturbed me and scared me and just like drew me in all at the same time. Um, and then a few years ago, unfortunately, Mr. Brewer passed away. He was really, he was pretty young and, and died early and tragically. And, um, but I just feel really, I feel, I, but I feel like he touched touched my life and the life of me and my friends in that in a way that that only a few teachers do uh, by introducing us to a, an artist who has uh, stuck with us for our lives. So, love you, Mr. Brewer. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would be proud to know that two of his students are going on a Kate Bush podcast. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> So you sounds like you've been a fan for a while then. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did manage to go to uh, to England to see the Before the Dawn show, which was probably the uh, most impractical thing I've ever done. But I felt <laughs> so incredibly lucky to get to do that. Um, and then now I go every year to a party called Night of a Thousand Cates in Philadelphia. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. Oh, it's fabulous. If you are ever in Philadelphia, um, it's kind of a DIY theater uh, um, and dance party event um, mm-hmm. where people just put on performances of Kate Bush song- Bush's songs. And it's just a very nerdy queer like celebration people go all out people like put on very 
elaborate Kate Bush performances. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I've not yet seen, uh, I've, I've gone two years and seen some videos from previous years. And I don't think anyone has attempted to do a performance of the song, The Dreaming, which is probably <laughs> for the best. From the Kate Bush Club newsletter, October 1982. We started with the drums, working to a basic Lynn drum pattern, making them sound as tribal and deep as possible. This song had to try and convey the wide open bush, the aborigines. It had to roll around in mud and dirt, try to become part of the earth. Earthy was the word used most to explain the sounds. There was a flood of imagery sitting, waiting to be painted into the song. The aborigines move away as the digging machines move in, mining for ore and plutonium. Their sacred grounds are destroyed, and their beliefs in dream time grow blurred through the influence of civilization and alcohol. Beautiful people from a most ancient race are found lying in the roads and gutters. Thank God the young Australians can see what's happening. The piano plays sparse chords, just to mark every few bars in the chord changes. With the help of one of Nick Lunay's magic sounds, the piano became wide and deep, affected to the point of becoming voices in a choir. The wide open space is painted on tape, and it's time to paint the sound that connects the humans to the earth, the didgeridoo. The didgeridoo took the place of the bass guitar and formed a constant drone, a hypnotic sound that seems to travel in circles. None of us had met Rolf Harris before, and we were very excited at the idea of working with him. He had arrived with his daughter, a friend, and an armful of didgeridoos. He is a very warm man, full of smiles and interesting stories. I explained the subject matter of the song, and we sat down and listened to the basic track a couple of times to get the feel. He picked up a didgeridoo, placing one end of it right next to my ear and the other at his lips, and began to play. I've never experienced a sound quite like it before. It was like a swarm of tiny velvet bees circling down the shaft of the didgeridoo and dancing around in my ear. It made me laugh. But there was something very strange about it, something of an age a long, long time ago. Women are never supposed to play a didgeridoo according to Aboriginal laws. In fact, there is a didgeridoo used for special ceremonies, and if this were ever looked upon by a woman before the ceremony could take place, she was taken away and killed. So it's not surprising that the laws were rarely disobeyed. After the ceremony, the instrument became worthless. It's purpose over. And it's such a song that honestly like wasn't really written to be performed like acoustically or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. production heavy on this song for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it models really well how Kate Bush mixes um, like the organic and the electronic, um, mm-hmm. like nature machine like comes together so in a way that like clashes and is also beautiful um, in a lot of her music but especially on this song that she's you know she's doing all of this um, really intense stuff with her voice and with other background vocals um, really singing singing in her high and low registers Mm -hmm. Uh, then there's, you know, of course, um, you know, traditional um, indigenous instruments um, like the the didgeridoo, uh, which we can get more into that later. Um, then there's animal noises, kind of all this super earthy stuff. And I know she, I read somewhere that she described this song as wanting it to really sound like it's from the Australian bush and mm-hmm. uh, 
want it to sound like it's coming out from the mud. Um, and then at the same time, it's, you know, of course, The Dreaming is her album where she's using the the Fairlight synthesizer and she's mm-hmm. incorporating sounds like like a slamming car door um, and uh, a sound and a, a what sounds like a orchestra hit that blaring mm-hmm. like, like thing that that happens um, and just really like clangy metallic sounding things and it mixes together in in a very eerie way. Yeah, that idea seems very much to be prompted by Australia. Is that correct? We've got Aborigines and the bush and all that kind of thing. Uh, where, where was it, was it a true from? reflection of a typical day in in Australia in your, <laughs> in your experience? When did you go there? Four years ago? Uh, yeah, four years ago, yeah. It was just a promotional trip. But um, I managed to talk to a lot of the young Australian people yeah. about Aborigines and their knowledge of them, if they'd ever met them. And uh, they told me all about the kangaroos and what a nuisance they are and how they have the big crash barriers on the front. Rubars. That's it, rubars, right. yeah. yeah. And uh, I picked up a, a feeling for what it was like from being there. So, um, yes, it was quite inspirational. Has that track, that particular track, been heard by Australians? I wonder what their reaction is towards it. Yes, I wonder. I think it would be a, a lot less um, unusual for them, obviously, because the didgeridoo is a home instrument and they know it very well. It's probably quite boring for them. Mm. So I don't know how they'll react. It'd be there's very one, interesting. Sorry, there's one very famous Australian featured on this album who you're not used to finding on, on, on rock records. Uh, Rolf Harris. Yes. He, he, this is correct, is it? He yeah. plays the didgeridoo on that track. Yes, he does. I think it's, um, it's interesting how people sort of go, Rolf Harris. Well, it, it's not the sort of person you <laughs> sing, used to seeing in credits. You know, no, along with he's not often mentioned on this program. No. no. Uh, great deal of folk music, I think we're going to call that, of, of music from a lot of other cultures, except for your opinion, couple. Uh, um. The concept of harmony doesn't, isn't really like ours. It's usually just mostly over a, a drone and, and the tonality mm-hmm. is like mostly just a single chord old phrase. That, that's an uh, strange contrast to it. Yeah, and, and certainly on this she's got like, yeah, the, the, the droning didgeridoo, so you just got that one note and and I know she's used that kind of thing. And the melody's dance, dancing around that. Yeah. 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 And the melody's going. It, it, there, it, there is something very primal about that, where it kind of feels like it goes back to to hum to humans when they were yeah. first around, and somebody yeah, not, would just not necessi- sit around. Not, not and just... necess- yeah. Not necessarily primal, but yeah, not Western. Not Western society is used to in terms of like the default in music. course we got the didgeridoo we got uh rolf harris um playing playing on the didgeridoo so you got that to me i didn't know what a didgeridoo was and so when i first heard the song and i'm going why does it sound like an airplane's taking off (laughs) (laughs) i um from from when i was nine nine years about nine and a half years old to when i was 12 uh a bit later uh i was with my i lived with my family um in uh uh, Australia because something related oh, to my dad's okay. job. Uh, so, so early, so by the time I started, I first heard the the dreaming. I knew what a didgeridoo was. I really, I knew really well, and 
I, I, th- I think if we, I even still have one in, it, in my home that we bought back then. Yeah, it's, uh, it's basically like a long horn, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. From uh, all that wood, I, I don't. Maybe, maybe there might be a specific type type of wood of like usually used to make, but I don't really remember what. So I don't really think I bothered to check in a long time, at least. That's why you mentioned like all the sounds, because oh my goodness, like we've got on this since we're kind of ta- starting to talk about the production. Yeah, we've got Stuart Elliott on drums. He's played on a lot of Kate Bush's songs, especially on this album. We've got Kate doing the piano in the Fairlight, of course. Um, we've got her brother, as usual, <laughs> on there doing some of his things. And um, he was the bull roarer and the backing vocals. Um, there is some crowd noise. It's credited to the Gosfield Goers. Um, animal sounds, courtesy of Percy Edwards. And then the now much maligned Rolf Harris on the didgeridoo that kind of thing on this sounds like a plane taking off every time i what first time i heard this i thought it was Mm -hmm. like a plane taking off right yeah i wonder if uh uh i believe didn't she redo um a song from ariel that featured rolf harris on vocals without him on it yeah, I forget which one. I forget which one too. She replaced. Um, she even replaced his vocals with her son. Right. I wonder if uh, if she'd ever redo the dreaming without his didgeridoo playing. That would be. That would take away a big element of the song for me. Right. It's part of the <laughs> it's part true. of what makes this song is that that airplane sounding thing about to take off sound that just drones throughout the whole track mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah uh, and if anyone is listening and does not know who Rolf Harris is I did not know who he was until I looked up who played the didgeridoo on this song um you know hoping that maybe she had collaborated with some indigenous artists uh which she did not um but he is now in prison for child rape right mm-hmm uh, it says Harris's, this is from KateBushEncyclopedia.com, Harris's career as a popular entertainer ended when he was convicted in prison for sexual offenses. In 2014, at the age of 84, he was jailed on 12 counts of indecent assault that took place between 1968 or 1969 and 1986 on four female victims then aged between 8 and 19. As a result, oh. he was stripped of many of the honors he had been awarded throughout his career, including the CBE. He was released from the HMP Stafford in May 2017. Uh, but before yeah. then, yeah, oh. he was an Australian. He's an Australian performer and TV personality, and um, he was not just a TV. So he was not just a TV personality, but he also did music. He played didgeridoo on. The Dreaming, he also was on Ariel, on appearing on the tracks in Architect's Dream and The Painter's Link. And as far as I know on the remasters, I do not have the remasters, just going off of what I know of what other people who have them, that those tracks were replaced with, or they were either completely taken out or his vocals were replaced with her sons. Mm. Yeah, so good good for Kate for, for uh, uh, acknowledging that so within the song yeah there's 
this is such a production heavy song that mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that not like you, you said at, at a night of a thousand Kates and always perform the song. Well, this would be really hard if not impossible to do mm-hmm. because yeah, there is a melody, but there aren't really like piano chords and things like that in this song. It's very much about that kind of sound, which like you said, was a car door. They, they actually mic'd up a car door and then something else here, too, is uh, this is from actually the um, Under the Ivy. To create the spacey metallic sound on the Dreaming, she plugged a guitar and a piano into a harmonizer, which was set an octave higher and connected to a reverb fl- plate fed back into the harmonizer, resulting in the note going up and up, going up and up and up an octave until it went so high you couldn't hear it. This effect was wow. used on several songs. And then, yeah, miking up a car door for the opening bang on the Dreaming. Wow. And you mentioned, did you mention something called a bull roarer? Yeah, bull roarer. Listeners, if you know what they mean by <laughs> bull roarer, I'm assuming it's part of the animal noises in the in the chorus of the song. Oh, so maybe so, like how someone made the bird noises. Maybe someone actually just made a bull noise. Okay. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing that. But listeners, if you know, then please feel free to write in. <laughs> and in terms of the production i mean you got these these drums that that would and you got these spacey metallic sounds you got the the fairlight doing an orchestral hit (laughs) yeah that that orchestral (laughs) hit that's like became a complete cliche through the rest of the decade in all music. And that's that original sound, which is sampled, I think, from a, rec- from a recording of, of The Firebird by Igor Stravinsky. A few months back, uh, Vox did a, vo- a news agency, whatever, Vox did a video about that. And, uh... This is the famed 20th century Russian composer Igor Stravinsky. He's about 80 years old here, but when he first composed the Firebird Suite, he was 28 years old. Holy shit. And during his adult life, the world changed dramatically two or three times. That's Robert Fink. He wrote a history of that sound you just heard. Firebird is his first major successful piece. It made his reputation. Everybody loved the Firebird. Stravinsky is like one of those rock stars who has one huge hit early on in their career. And then they have to play that song every concert for the rest of their lives. He adjusted the score a bit over the years, but the jarring opener of one of the last scenes in the ballet remained one of Firebird's most dramatic moments. Right, because what it is, is it's basically a gesture for the orchestra. It shocks the hell out of you in the context of the original piece. So how did that become so ubiquitous that in 1992, NWA said this about it on Straight Out of Compton? To figure that out, you have to go to Australia. I'm Peter Vogel. I developed the first commercial sampling synthesizer, which was the Fairlight CMI, back in about 1975. The other person who was involved was Kim Ryrie. This is the Fairlight CMI. To put it simply, it's one of the most influential musical innovations of the past 100 years. It was one of the very first digital synthesizers, a digital audio workstation, 
and the first digital sampler all in one. With the aid of computers, you could create the music that you had in your head a lot more easily than if you had to sit down and learn to play instruments from scratch. It was really a, a lazy shortcut. What really made the Fairlight a game changer, though, was the digital sampler. You could hook up a microphone to the Fairlight, record any second of sound, and then play it at any pitch on the keyboard. There were babies, screeches, smashes, drips, and rotary dials. And then there was the orchestra hit. Ironically, the, the orchestra hit was a complete accident, which was sampled by me. Uh, I just happened to have a, a vinyl recording of the Stravinsky Firebird Suite nearby when I was messing around that orchestra hit, which I think was right at the beginning of, of one of the tracks. And I thought, oh, that's a good sound. Peter called the sound Orc 2 and put it on an 8-inch floppy disk full of those other stock sounds. And obviously, uh, a lot of people took a liking to it. does have a especially with the way that they mic'd up the drums that it sounds unlike anything I know I had ever heard before when I first heard this song I heard it on the whole story so I started with well I first heard one like you I first heard Wuthering Heights although this was like 20 plus years later and then a couple of years later, I started getting more into her music because I kept hearing on Flashback Alternatives, which was mm. a radio station that's still around. And then my mom got me the red shoes for Christmas one year. And I started just kind of listening to her more on Flashback Alternatives. I got the whole story. And that was when I heard this song. And it was just unlike anything I'd ever heard before. It was, mm-hmm. it was like, it was just strange and scary <laughs> yeah and i'm laughing only because like it, that's kind of how I, felt, how I felt when i listened i'm like what is she doing with her voice what are these what eh, these noises right right yeah it really um makes use of like her highest and lowest registers um and kind of i don't know she makes these interesting sounds like when she goes like pull of the bush it's it's uh it sounds sort of otherworldly mm-hmm. um and even like the, it's it's notable too that on this song like on like on there goes a tenor when she's singing she's using an accent mm, right right because on there goes a tenor she's going for like east london cockney sort of thing and on this she's going for that very like, I mean, you can see this here, but you know, obviously, listeners, you can't. But I kind of scrunching up my face. She says she's going for this very nasal sort of sound to go with. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she's singing in an Australian accent, right? Which is which, which makes it a little hard, even harder than usual to understand the words that she's saying. Um, so I know it for me. I needed to look up the lyrics to figure out even what this is about. And then, of course, the the chorus is breaking down the word dream time into 
into kind of one syllable at a time, like in a way where right, where like I had no idea what that was saying before either. That's why I was like, I was like, okay, she's making right. I did not realize it was saying a word. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I think the accent is really. Really interesting. Um, I mean, I've seen people online say that it's a terrible accent and it sounds silly, and I don't really know enough about Australian accents to be able to tell you if she does a good one or not. Um, <laughs> but um, like, it's it's interesting that she is um, she's taking the voice of the colonizer in Australia, um, and she is. Um, kind of using that perspective to critique it, to say, um, to kind of like demonstrate the hubris of these colonizers who are saying, um, you know, it's the dawn of a new man. Um, these really kind of like violent um, statements that, you know, in the U.S. context, we would say manifest destiny um, mm-hmm. or or white man's burden, these these theories that have like kept white Europeans, uh, you know, stealing indigenous people's lands and believing that it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, and then she's of course like mocking that, um, saying things like, um, you know, I think the, the last, the last line, um, in English is see the sun set in the hand of the man, like saying, like kind of mocking herself or her character saying like, well, I think that I am, doing all this stuff to advance mm. my race, but really like I am destroying this land and destroying these people and destroying myself. Um, and on the one hand, it sort of seems like in assuming that, uh, that perspective and um, critiquing it and, and, and taking it on, she's sort of exploring her own complicity in um in colonization as a British person. Um, but then the Australian accent makes me wonder how much she sees her own complicity because it's like, she's, she's taking on this other character and sort of projecting the role of the imperialist onto someone else and someone who is separate from an English person, um, as an Australian person. So that I think is an interesting question about, um, kind of why, what the what the either aesthetic or political purpose of the Australian accent is there. Mm-hmm. I think it's especially interesting that this was released as a single given just yes. how strange it is. Because like, this was one of the strangest songs I ever heard when I first heard it on the whole story. Well, <laughs> well we're already coming across plenty of like questionable uh, uh, choices for singles and Kate mm. Bush's discovery in general, but especially in this album. So uh, anyway, what's, what were the other choices, to be honest? Uh, any... Um, not really many. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they already released Sat in Your Lap. They had, yeah. uh, they eventually put out Night of the Swallow, even though it was only in Ireland. And um, Suspended in Gaffa was only in Europe. 
Um, there goes a tenor. I'm surprised there goes a tenor didn't do a lot better because that's got nice yeah. got a nice beat to it. I, you could probably yeah. dance to it. Um, but yeah, on this album, there really weren't many choices of pops, quote unquote, pop singles. And yeah. I kind of feel like maybe her record company was like, I don't know, let's just, what about the title track? Okay, sure. Oh, wait, <laughs> it tanked. Oh, oops, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, this was, I mean, it only released, reached number 48 on the charts, got largely negative reviews, like people talking about it being strange and, Oh, it sounds like she's trying to go like less commercial, huh? Kind of thing. Um, it was only on the charts even for three weeks. Like, it entered August 1st, 1981 at number 49. Went to number 48 the next week. Week after that, number 62. And by August 22nd, it was off the chart. So mm. it just sank like a stone. From a press statement by Kate Bush, 1982. The aboriginals are not alone in being pushed out of their land by modern man, by their diseases, or for their own strange reasons. It is very sad to think they might all die. The dreaming is the time for aboriginals when humans took the form of animals, when spirits were free to roam, and in this song as the civilized begin to dominate, the original ones dream of the dream time. She hasn't really talked about like why she chose to sing in that Australian accent. And I've always kind of wondered that, like, okay, is is she playing a colonist who's mocking the rest of his colonizers or, or yeah. what? Mm, ah, so it's her character. Like, she's mocking the colonizers, but it's her character mocking the colonizers. Yeah. But then there's just some, it's kind of hard, it's hard for me to tell. I mean, I can get, I get a sense of what the song is about, that it's the destruction by the Europeans of a native culture. And there are some especially telling lines, I think, in here that, yes, I know this is about Australian culture, but I honestly think could be applied to any culture that's been overrun by Europeans. Mm -hmm. The civilized keep alive the territorial war. Erase the race that claim the place and say we dig for or dangle devils in a bottle and push them from the pull of the bush. Mm. Yeah, it's some really I mean, it intense is... and damning lines. Yeah, and definitely the pull of the bush. That's specific to Australia. Mm. But I think that that I those ideas and those the, the idea in those lyrics is the colonists coming in, realizing that oh wait. We've got these couple of tribes that live nearby who all hate each other. Well, we kind of, we want their land. So we're going to just like manipulate them into killing each other. And then, Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, oops. Gee, nobody has this land around. We're going to come on in here and take it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and they race the race that claim the place and say we dig for ore. Got gold, guns, gold and gold, guns and glory, whatever that phrase was that one of my history teachers used for the um i know this was about the spanish spanish coming into uh south america the 
Yeah, and I think it's really cool that she's connecting um, that she's connecting colonialism with militarism and environmental destruction. Um, that she is, um, you know, she's talking about digging for ore, about how the resources is part of the motivation for um, for kicking indigenous people off their land violently. Um, and she also, I, I had, I looked this up. I didn't know what this word meant. So before this podcast, I looked it up, but Woomera, she mm-hmm. says a couple times, it's sort of, it's kind of like whispered in the background, Woomera. And I sort of like the dream time. I was like, I just sort of thought it was sounds she was making, but Woomera is actually the name of, um, a, a military testing facility, um, that the Australian government maintains in a, in a town named Woomera that, um, they kicked indigenous people out of. Um, and they tested nuclear weapons there. Um, and at some points in history, it's been one of the most active like missile ranges in the world. Um, mm. So like she say, so basically she's basically saying you destroyed, you destroyed a community um, to create this military testing grounds. Um, and now it is going to be a source of more violence and more destruction kind of indefinitely, um, which really reminds me of, of breathing on the last album and continues this, this theme of, of like an anti-war message in her music. Yeah. Um, and then in the video, um, uh, which, you know, we can, it's not, it's not one of my favorite of her videos. Me neither, <laughs> no. Talk about there. Um, but there's a lot of, it's sort of like you see the pollution in the video. There's a, there's a shot where she's actually, you see, it looks like she's coughing out dirt. Um, everything is super foggy. Um, so it's kind of like you can feel the environmental destruction in that video. Mm. That, so that that's something I learned <laughs> from, yeah. from this. Um, yeah. But then, then at the same time, I think she talks about nature and environmentalism in this song in ways that are are pretty racist. Um, and so that was going to be my other kind of thing because I know with this song, I think a lot of the discussion is going to be on like how does she deal with race? Right. Right. Um, so with the nature stuff specifically, um, or how she's talking about the earth. Um, it seems when I've seen her quoted talking about this song, she seems very, she seems like she's romanticizing indigenous Aboriginal people as people who are super linked to the earth, very close to the earth, which is not to say that, that, that link, that connection between indigenous people and the land they are indigenous to does not exist. But yeah. I think Kate Bush talks about it in sort of a superficial way. Um, and I've, there's a, a, a phrase I've heard used it to describe like a, a cultural phenomenon of the, the noble savage, um, where indigenous people, um, mostly my context for this is in the United States, but I'm sure it, it extends to uh, colonial ways that colonists talk all around the world um, of 
kind of portraying indigenous people as these pure, um, kind of morally centered, simple, uncivilized people who, um, uh, who are just, who are closer to animals than, um, than white people are. Um, Mm -hmm. like the way, and I think this shows in her music when she's saying, Many an aborigine mistaken for a tree, you near them and the tree begins to breathe. Many an aborigine mistaken for a tree, tell you near him on the murder way, the tree begins to breathe. On the one hand, there's sort of a beautiful image there of, like, of, of um, how the colonists are so clueless. Um, that they can't understand that there are real people there. And at the same time, she's replicating this racist trope. And by comparing human beings to, to trees, mm-hmm. um, it, it's dehumanizing. And it, it kind of makes it harder for the listener um, to really empathize with the way that, that indigenous people are experiencing colonialism um, and it just it doesn't feel respectful of the complexity of these communities that were destroyed by the the Woomera testing facility and all of the colonization of of Australia. Um, yeah, I guess in it's a sort of more general critique of this song is that um, she is clearly concerned about the the impact of colonization on indigenous people in Australia. And -hmm. it's also clear that she has no relationships to actual um, indigenous people. (laughs) Um, I, I I mean, who knows? Maybe there's some, maybe there's some relationships that I don't know about uh, that I'm, that I'm uh, making assumptions about, but you know, it's, it's clear that, um, she didn't work with any indigenous musicians. These are all white um, uh, British musicians, or I guess mm-hmm. Rolf Harris, white Australian. Um, but they're all uh, all white people working on this. So um, the music itself, in the use of the didgeridoo, um, is a example of cultural appropriation um, mm-hmm. of using a, using a religious. Um, using a, a traditional indigenous instrument that has like religious and cultural significance, um, totally out of that context. Um, and then she's of course, you know, talking about, um, the destruction of a community, uh, without any accountability to that community themselves. So I do wonder like, what, what did she what reaction was she expecting? Was she, when she wrote the song, was she expecting any indigenous people to actually listen to it? And if so, what did she want their reaction to be? Um, I imagine there are probably some, you know, I, I listened to this as a white American and, and learned something new about, Me too. um, yeah, yeah. About the history of colonization in Australia. Um, but like, so was that her intention? Um, she's clearly not actually empowering indigenous people with this. Um, and probably the most telling example of this is that um, the original title of the song, when it was released, had a racial slur in it, which mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to repeat, uh, but um, she, she, she recall, they recalled the first couple, the first uh, several albums that were, or not albums, sorry, the 
they re- they recalled the initial release and gave it the title the dreaming instead um mm. but it's like clearly you don't know any indigenous aboriginal people and didn't consult with anybody and didn't share any resources um that you are or money that you're earning in your career um with the people who are actually impacted by um the issues of colonialism you're talking about Mm um let's see oh and i would also add when talking about the um sort of the the cultural appropriation aspect Mm -hmm. is that the very concept that forms the core of the song, which is the dreaming, is a spiritual and religious concept of Aboriginal people, um, which Kate Bush defined it in an interview, Dreamtime, as uh, kind of a historic period where people and animals were more closely linked. Um, And I did a little more reading about it, and I I wasn't quite sure um, what... Uh, what the exact origins of the concept of dream time are, but it does seem like there's a, a legacy of um, like British fascination with this concept of dream time. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, it, it, Kate Bush is taking it out of context and um, using it, using this, Maybe. right. She's reusing, using a religious term from a community. She's not part of um, for her own purposes. Um, and that's, that's the very that's the very concept the song is structured around. I think that she's trying that she her heart is in the right place. Yeah. I really do. Especially because this comes a couple tracks after another song that again was about people actually more about war really instead of just invasion mm-hmm. but in pull out the pin she's mm-hmm. a vietnamese soldier and the whole theme of that song is as you know you guys will remember from the episode that in that episode in that episode we were talking a lot about um how she her the main theme of the song is these, as she she put them, beautiful people, these beautiful natives who are being wiped out. Mm-hmm. And so I can see a continuation of that theme within this song. And so I think her heart is in the right place. Mm-hmm. But I do agree with you. It feels a little bit like cultural appropriation and not necessarily in a good way, which is part of why this song is sits so low for me in terms of like favorite song if I have to rank songs on the dreaming this tends to rank a little bit low Mm -hmm. it used to be a lot higher and then once I started really kind of digging into this song and what does it mean and all the different references I I had a feeling of okay your heart's in the right place but I'm not eh, this feels a little bit right Right. Yeah, I agree that that there's parts of it that are really impressive, that she is, um, like, it's very, her political position is very clear, which is that the colonization of Australia is violent, and and the people doing it are wrong. There's no, like, moral ambiguity in the message of her song, um, which 
I think is actually, which I, I appreciate that since she's talking about um, a form of violence that, that she is complicit in as a, as a white person. Um, and I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that she is taking on the perspective of the Australian colonizer. Um, whereas pull out the pin actually makes me a little more uncomfortable um, because she is taking on the perspective of a, a Viet Cong soldier. Um, and this is a way that th- this is something about Kate Bush that is like so incredible um, that she's somebody who just like, who is a storyteller who can take on a million different perspectives and take the listener through different worlds. Um, uh, it, you know, it, the, the fact that she, you know, the fact that this album is full of both like really otherworldly storytelling um, and also these like deep investigations into like the meaning of human existence on songs like, um, on songs like Satin in Your Lap or, or Suspended in Gaffa um, or Leave It Open. Um, but as a white British woman, when she is taking on the perspectives of, um, you know, people from uh, English folklore um, or people in her own society, um, there's something so liberating and subversive about her taking on various perspectives. But then when she is, um, you know, taking on perspectives of people who she can only understand through a colonialist and orientalist light, um, that's actually disempowering. And it's not, um, it's not actually expanding the kind of creative world she's building. It's actually limiting it. There's a quote from her that I really like, um, which I'll paraphrase, but she says, she says like, I remember being a child dancing in the living room and how free I was and how I felt like I could do anything. And then I became aware that people were watching me and then I stopped dancing or I didn't enjoy dancing, something like that. And she says the the goal of her career is to get back to that place where mm-hmm. she can just truly be herself. Um, and that is like so empowering and amazing. And that is why I love Kate Bush um, because I feel <laughs> like she helps me get to that place <laughs> um, where I can just like experience, I can where my imagination can go in a lot of different directions. Um, but she, the problem is that she's not just being herself and exploring whatever she wants in a political vacuum. Um, there are power dynamics and oppression and with songs like Kashka from Baghdad mm-hmm. or, or this one, it is, um, uh, you know, she's not thinking about the harm that she's perpetuating. Um, when she takes on stories that are not hers to tell. Um, So that's a very long way of saying that what I do appreciate about the dreaming (laughs) is that she is, (laughs) is that she is um, um, investigating the perspective of a colonizer. And I think Mm -hmm. this song would be um, even more, uh, racist if she had tried to take on the perspective of an indigenous aboriginal person Agreed. Uh, and, yeah in the way that she takes on the perspective of a Viet Cong soldier and pull out the pin the, the song also brings up important questions about um, you know as for us as you know people who 
I, I assume from listening to the podcast so far that you're someone who believes in social justice and is a relatively progressive person. That's the assumption yeah. I've made. So yep, in many ways, okay. yes. Okay, great. If that doesn't <laughs> totally fit, whatever. But I guess I'll speak for myself. Like, um, <laughs> as somebody who you know believes in social justice and believes that that art and cultural production um, has is inherently political. Um, how do we, um, like, how do we engage with art from different time periods? And are we obligated to, um, view that art in, in its own time period or through the political lens of today? Um, and so I don't think that any of the harm, um, of cultural appropriation was less present back in the early eighties, but I do know that the concept of cultural appropriation was not really prevalent back then. Mm -hmm. I believe it was really academics in the 90s that kind of brought the concept of cultural appropriation to the fore. Um, And I believe that there was less of a, it seems like there was less discussion um, at the time about the ways that that art perpetuates power. Um, You know, it was seen like white male musicians were seen as the norm. (laughs) Um, So even Kate Bush, just being a woman, of course, as you've talked about on the podcast uh, um, and, and producing and writing her own music was, um, you know, an incredibly revolutionary thing. Um, So I think we have to be realistic in knowing that like Kate Bush would not, it, it makes sense that Kate Bush would not have realized that, many of the pieces of this song were racist and colonialist. Um, so what do we do with this song now? <laughs> Can like, should we enjoy it for what it is? Um, should we see it solely as a historical document and a learning opportunity? Um, or can we do both? Or is there something else? Well, I think it can go a little bit both ways. I think we can look at it as like an artifact of the time in which she wrote it. It's much like some of the, oh gosh, there's a, there's a book. Um, oh, it was King Solomon's Mines. And a lot of the, the writing from like King Solomon's Mines and all the other books from that time period, like we read them now and we go, okay we don't think like that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we look at it as, okay, this is what they thought back then. We don't think like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think also that with a song like this, and we could, if we wanted to like take away some of the, some of the lyrics and just listen to even just the production. Cause I think what mm-hmm. strikes me the most about the song is the production. Mm-hmm. Cause me being such a music nerd and, hearing that oh you mic'd up a car door and turned that into a a cool drum sound right things like that And now here's the part of the show that I am the most excited to share with you guys the wonderful listeners. A few months ago, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, a few months ago, I tweeted that I was looking for folks to contribute to this episode, especially because the song is rooted in a culture that I'm going to admit I do not know much about, that it would be good to have somebody on the show who no 
knows more of what they're talking about than I do. So I put out a tweet. And Christine Kelly, who is a good friend of the show and who has also been on the show quite a bit, she let me know that, oh, yes, I know somebody and I'm going to email her and she should be in contact with you soon. I eventually got in contact with this woman through the Facebook page and we got to speak for a good while about not just the song, The Dreaming, but also Aboriginal culture and its history. And I'm just super excited for this part because it was just so wonderful to get to talk to somebody who knows more about the culture than I do and to be able to share it with you guys. So here we're going to finally get to hear from Lizzie Orley. Lizzie Orley is a Gamilaroi woman who works for a Brisbane-based Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community radio station called 98.9 FM. And when I asked her about Kate's song, because I sent her a link to watch the video before we chatted, she had a lot to say. We've already been talking a lot with Liza about cultural appropriation and how this was treated in the song. But Lizzie has even more insights to the song and especially Aboriginal culture and how it relates to the dreaming. So without further ado, here we're going to get to hear from Lizzie Orley. I called her late one night my time and it was early morning her time. So here we go. Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with me today. This is awesome. Oh my goodness. Yay. <laughs> no worries. Uh, thank you so much for um, reaching out. I got a hold of this through one of um, your supporters. Um, mm-hmm. I do forget. Oh, Christine. Christine was one of them. So, yeah, she got a hold of me and told me that you were uh, looking for someone to talk to around uh, Kate Bush and her track, The Dreaming. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, it's super, like, pretty interesting video clip. I gave it a, a watch. <laughs> yeah, because um, I, wa- I definitely, like, because for me the, the, the video is what kind of makes me kind of irks me the most about the song and so I'm like hmm I don't know much about the I don't know much about um aboriginal culture and so that's why I wanted to reach out to somebody who knows a lot more about it than I do (laughs) yeah well um I you know with um me and my family there's like even again I only know so much myself because um with my family there's um, a lot of trauma that has gone on. So basically, mm-hmm. you know, um, the way with how the white policy, you know, worked here in Australia, um, I guess a, a big part of it was uh, people weren't allowed to speak the language or um, if you were considered half-caste, etc. which we don't use those terms anymore. Um, mm-hmm. But if you, back then, if you were considered as such, um, you know, you, you would be refrained from um I guess as a, as a child, even playing with other or associating with other um, Aboriginal or, or Torres Strait Islander people. So it's pretty, um, pretty full on. But um, so from what I know, I can, I can, you know, in terms of, you know, cultural appropriation and stuff like that within the video, which is something that I did definitely notice. Um, okay. Yeah, I can talk, I can talk as far as that. But even in, in the lyrics, it was super interesting. Um, so 
yeah, I, uh, the song itself is called Dreamtime, um, which, you know, I didn't even know about this song until um, I, I, uh, Christine spoke to me about um, that mm-hmm. you were looking for someone. So I was like, oh, okay. And then I, I, it just piqued my interest because I, you know, I do like Kate Bush, but then looking <laughs> at this song <laughs> and, and the video and the lyrics, um, you know, I mean, the video clip and, and, and things used within the video clip is only the tip of the iceberg. Um, gotcha. Because, you know, so there's like, um, I think, you know, if you're a, a non-Indigenous person and you're going to write a song about, um, you know, people um, within like the culture is to go into, you know, go and talk to the community um, to, I guess, gain permission and, and let them know that you're wanting what you're wanting to do as a first instance. Um, and uh, because, you know, with that video clip, she, I, I noticed that there were, I, I mean, it didn't seem like there were Indigenous people, like Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people in that video clip to even, de- you know, rep- like I, I didn't see any like First Nations people in that video clip that, mm-hmm. like they looked like, you know, non-Indigenous people wearing um, traditional painting and things like that, which wasn't, I don't, I wouldn't even know if that's traditional in the video clip at all. It was just people with painted bodies. Um, but yeah, so that on that level is like kind of like what what did I just watch? <laughs> okay, um, yeah, yeah. Not to mention that you know in the song, the the person playing didgeridoo is a white person, Rolf Harris, um, of all people. Um, mm, yeah, I've read about I've read about him in recent years. We haven't gotten as yeah. much press about him in the United yeah. States, but I know because he played on the song, and I'm looking into like who played on the song, and like oh my goodness, that's a big can of worms. Okay, yeah. yeah. So there's there's that aspect. Well, um, I can understand the good intentions about the issue she's trying to highlight because she mentions Woomera, which. Um, at first I was like, why is she talking about Woomera? You know, it's a, a town in South Australia. But then, you know, looking further into what the song was about, so, okay, it's about, um, I guess, the further removal of our, of, or the destruction of Aboriginal people and our land. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you, do this, if, you do, if you destroy the land, you destroy us. That's our direct, we have a direct connection to the land. That, that is our everything, you know. Um, right. Major, even, you know, within our own identity, it's a major part of us, so... Um, I understand why she she did that, but um, yeah. And the original track of the song, you know, the original name it was called the Abo song, which is absolutely a racial slur. Nobody uses that here unless it's derogatory. Um, so yeah. <laughs> in Australia um, is around northern New South Wales in, um, you know, colonised land, I guess, the, the way that, you know, you would view that. Um, but, yeah, around northern New South Wales is where our mob is located. Um, mm-hmm. And he seemed to know quite a lot about what went on around Woomera in terms of, um, 
there was some mining that had gone on in, a, I think it was called, uh, don't quote me on this, um, but Miniga or something like that um, mm -hmm. in in the in that town and, and it was pretty like crazy things that happened there. Um, so, you know, um, I think like definitely if you wanted to get in touch with them, you know, more about the song, I guess, about the issue of, I guess, what stemmed off from this song in terms of, like, what happened in that area. I can put you in touch more with someone else. Um, I only know a little bit mm -hmm. about that. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I think, you know, with this video clip, um, I guess the, the best thing if you were going to do anything like this, like my, my interpretation of this is... Um, Okay, sure, her heart might have been in the right place, but to talk with, with the people there, uh, represent them in the video clip, um, you know, get mm -hmm. permission from from the, the elders, uh, you know, the traditional owners in the area of what she's even talking about to, to make this song. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. because even, you know, it's especially the dancers, um, you know, it she she does like a, a an arm movement which is very similar to the brolga dance and and there's things like that which it's like well did she have permission to perform that and does she know what that means like you wouldn't just throw that into a video clip unless there was unless there was a significant meaning to that dance for a particular reason because there are different dances for different things um, mm -hmm. you know telling a story or welcoming someone to country etc so um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as I know, these dancers in the video, obviously it's it's Kate Bush and then her two dancers, uh, Stuart Avon Arnold and Gary Hurst, and one of them is black. I actually, no, I think, no, actually, I think both of them are black. And so she's the only, uh, she's the only Ooh, white sorry, person in the video. Sorry, you cut out a little bit there. I only oh, heard, did? Oh, okay. um, and one of them is, uh, one of them is black. Actually, both of them are black. Out of the dancers? Yeah, the, uh, uh, in the dancers, uh, the dan of the dancers, um, the two that she's dancing with, uh, uh, Gary Hurst and Stuart Avon Arnold, they are black. So she oh. is the only white person in the video. And are they uh, Aboriginal or? No, they are uh, British African. Okay. See, again, like, yeah. that, that's just like, oh, well, a black person will do. It's like, well, well, no. Yeah, so that, again, is quite offensive because then it kind of groups Aboriginal people all into, you know, it's, it, it's not appropriate. It's like it groups Aboriginal people all together as if we're all the same, uh, mm -hmm. but we're not because, I mean, it's well known that um, in a lot of, a lot of clans, uh, women can't play didgeridoo. But that's mm -hmm. actually incorrect because there, in other clans around Australia, there are uh, certain, in certain ceremonies, Aboriginal people, uh, Aboriginal women can. Um, oh, okay. You know, and that's why we don't like. Oh, not everybody. I'm not speaking on behalf of everybody here, by the way. These are just my own opinions and what from what I've observed. Um, mm -hmm. But um, even you know, I, a lot of people that I uh, know in the community don't agree with term indigenous because oh. um, when you say indigenous, you're grouping Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people together. Um, and so Torres Strait Islander 
people have a very, very different culture within themselves and it, within themselves there's different clans as well broken up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then, you know, even the term Aboriginal, it's like, well, what, what does that mean? You're grouping all Aboriginal people together. Well, we're not, no, we're, again, excuse me, we're so diverse. Um, you know, there's a move called Shake a Leg that some mobs up north, they don't have it, but some, you know, further down do. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, even uh, even the different um, traditional like um, uh, paintings and uh, body paint, excuse me. Um, even even that, you know, there's different designs and different things that that mean something different. Um, you know, so yeah, that and, and there's that that's even kind of in a way it appropriating these kinds. Of all these things together it gives leeway into other people into um you know making money off it which is stealing again money from a, a culture that i mean barely anybody really knows about or or that kind of thing i mean there's people here that mm-hmm. i know that have claimed to be first nations um people from you know america or canada um mm-hmm. rather than claim here because if you, if you, from our perspective, there's a stronger culture of, um, you know, um, First Nations uh, clans and the various clans over in America and um, Canada. There's, you know, that's more well known mm-hmm. than our than our own. Um, so it just kind of takes that away, and again, further um, attributes to the just the, the destruction of our peoples. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> to put it bluntly, um, I think that that's super inappropriate. But you know that dancer, those dancers. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 kind of yeah, it's it's wrong in, in my eyes anyway. Um, so within the video with those dances, what are, what are some yeah. of the arm? What what are some of the movements that she's trying to that she's trying to do uh, to represent uh, the song? I noticed, um, so uh, significantly, I noticed there was um, some arm movements going on, um, that, which was like that similar of like a bird kind of flapping, um, mm-hmm. and that reminded me of the the Brolga dance that you know um, a couple of clans do um, to to tell particular stories or, or um, you know represent something. Um, so. There was that I significantly remember. Um, I didn't. I don't remember much else. Sorry, I'm going to have to read. That's okay. <laughs> but, um, and... Oh, pardon. Sorry, it cut off a little. It started coming in and out a little bit. Yeah, you weren't. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, um, with the Brogger dance, I couldn't tell you too much about that um, mm-hmm. because I'm pretty sure that's with definitely a whole other uh, couple of other clans. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I think that I don't know. Yeah, uh, she's yeah again heart in the right place, but <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of just you can't just swim, swim you know go into somewhere and think, oh, this issue needs to be spoken about, but that not about with the community that is even involved with this particular issue is kind of like, what are you doing? 
And as mentioned, this was part of a much longer interview. If you want to hear the full interview and get access to it, you can go to patreon.com slash Podcast. And starting at the $5 level, you can get the special Patreon-only feed, Deeper Understanding. And I'm going to be releasing the full interview starting next week. think of the I know you said that the video wasn't really your favorite admittedly it's not mine either um what do you especially since we've been talking a lot about the theme of the the theme and the lyrics and the general just like what's going on in the song and what's the song about what do you think of the music video and how it relates to the lyrics because I'm gonna say for me it probably this part will definitely get edited out because I'm hoping that I will get to talk with um, uh, the Aboriginal lady that I want to know her thoughts. Like the kind of dancing she's doing in the video, is that a specific kind of native dance or what? Because to me, honestly, the, the mess, the, the, the message I think is lost in the video and it feels okay. silly. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is one of the more silly videos. Um, like the the background dancers like popping out of the rocks. Um, the like people getting kind of buried in dirt at the end. And yeah, they are not her best dance moves. I hadn't considered that they might be that it might be imitating uh, some sort of Aboriginal dance. Uh, which, if it is, would definitely offend me <laughs> to take, um, to, to take those dances. Um, but yeah, I had not, I had not thought of that. Um, yeah. What do I think of the dance of the, of the video? Yeah. It's, it's hard to tell. Um, you know, there is like this dynamic where her, her background dances, it looks like they are people of color. Um, but you can't really see their faces. They're not mm-hmm. really featured. And the fact that they're coming from the rocks and then getting buried in the dirt is, is again, um, dehumanizing in this sort of, uh, like, essentializing way of seeing people of color as, as um, more connected to earth and to, and to animals and to the landscape. Um, and her being this white woman dancing in front of them um, is, yeah, there's like a orientalist colonialist dynamic to the whole thing. Mm. Um, yeah. The things I do like, as I mentioned before, I like the, um, the, the smog of the video. I think that's a cool effect. Mm-hmm. There's also, there's this lasers part in the middle, which is interesting. Like a laser comes out and it's kind of like, going into the stomach of one of the background dancers in a way that it's hard to tell if it's supposed to represent weaponry or violence. What do you think that laser I think it is about? Repre- I think it represents weaponry mm. and the, the colonists coming in with their, with obviously they wouldn't have had lasers in the 1700s, but they did have guns and they had other more, high, for the time, high-tech weapons that 
made it easier to kill the colon or that made it easier to kill the people who were there before. Mm-hmm. So I interpret that as a the laser is a symbol of the weaponry, the advanced weaponry that the settlers had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And going through that makes sense. using it and how it was it's so easy with a laser. <sighs> you, know, you just kill you can kill something immediately, just like you could do right. with a gun. You right. pull that trigger, right. boom, you're dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then she does this. She does this dance with the laser, kind of almost touching it, as though it's sort of a rope that her and the other dancers are pulling. Which is it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. very surreal. It really mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to tell in the song. She is taking the perspective of the of the colonizer, and in the video. It's hard to tell whether she is supposed to be the colonizer or one of the Aboriginal people because her costume's a little different from mm-hmm. that of the background dancers. Um, I do like her co- her costume. It's it's um, it again like the song itself. It kind of blends the organic and the industrial looking. There's something sort of space outer space like about her costume, um, but there's also something um, sort of elegant um about the stitching on the costume like it's hard to tell if it's supposed to resemble some sort of um like traditional cloth um or if it's supposed to be like i am an invader like i'm a space invader to this Mm. land (laughs) or if it's like i'm one i'm an aboriginal person i i I cannot tell yeah i can't tell either (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah And edit this out if I'm wrong, but I vaguely remember, is there some live performance of the video with like a lizard? Oh my gosh. Yes, there is. Okay. I'm not making this You're not. Yeah. What what is with that? Okay. So the lizard one, I had to go look around like, what in the hell is this? It (laughs) is, it was for Italian TV. Of course. And I'm like, what's wrong? Yeah. It was for Italian TV and shoot this is why we edit yeah where was it <laughs> i have it in my notes here other yeah i think italian tv i have a link to it the one for italian tv and i think that's the lizard one. Oh my god like what what does the lizard represent is it supposed to be like, is, is that supposed, like, the lizard is, like, really big, kind of projected behind her. So I'm like, is that supposed to symbolize, like, the looming threat of imperialism and colonial violence? Or is it supposed to be, like, like, oh, a lizard is almost like an animal you would meet in the Australian outback. So here's a lizard. I guess <laughs> yeah. she is very literal. So um, it might be oh. that. It was for German TV. That's what it was. It was for mm. German TV. I'll send you a link to it. it it's usually known as the giant lizard version. Giant. It is, it's just so random. It looks like a B movie when you're watching it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> right, it's like so the green screen effects are so bad. <laughs> I know, oh my god. So whose idea was that? Like, oh, we're gonna do this video about uh, like we're gonna perform this song about like colonial violence and nuclear testing. Uh, let's have a big giant lizard. Why not? Yeah, because sure. I mean, as if that's as if the song couldn't get weird enough, right? The lizard in it. Just in case. Yeah, she performed this on several different. She the the giant lizard version. There was another version for Italian TV that showed her just replicating the dance moves out on Mm -hmm. stage. And then there's another one here. I have it marked as Nas Nasoas. Oh, wait a minute. No, I think this was the one. Oh, yeah, this is the giant lizard one. Okay. Oh, that is the giant lizard yeah. one. <laughs> Naso- All right, so the giant lizard one you were talking about, Nasovas, for on September 27th, 1982. Mm. <laughs> and that's where that version comes from. It's very, I- I'm going to link to it in the show notes, guys. You have to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Look. Super weird. I wonder whose lizard it was. I don't know, but. So his pet lizard got to be in a Kate Bush video. So there you go. <laughs> Always. But now she kind of like had to hustle this one a little bit because hmm. her record company released this as a single. Um, mm. It was released as a single on July 26th, 1982. And it didn't do all that well as a single. Gee, uh, honestly, mm. shocker there. Uh, reached number 48, received largely negative reviews. Entered the chart at number 49 in the UK on August 1st, 1982. Next week went one up just a tiny bit to number 48. Then after that, 19, number 62. And then poof, it was off the charts by the end of the month. So it just came and went. Wow. Yeah. There's some there's some Kate Bush albums where I think, wow, why did this song get released as a as a single? Oh, you know, right? like like uh, breathing being released as a single off of Never Forever. Um, but when it comes to the dreaming, uh, I would say I would ask, why did she release this song as the single? But it's not like there's any other song on this album that 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 strikes me as particularly radio friendly. Seriously. Yeah, there's not like the there's not the like easy melodic hooks of her other records. Um, I remember you talking about how Lionheart, uh, you know, has some of her has some of her like kind of most extravagant vocals. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that even though the vocal quality is really different on the Dreaming because she's getting more into the deeper guttural stuff, she's still going to like vocal extremes here mm-hmm. all throughout the album that she that I don't think she goes to quite that extreme on any of her other albums. So it it kind of makes sense that some of the things that um, make hardcore Kate Bush fans love her all the more, but make uh, you know. Uh, make male critics intimidated <laughs> would be particularly prominent on this album. So it makes sense that, that the single would not be critically well received.
Well, good luck. And <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And you know, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show today. Yay, it was oh, great to talk to welcome. you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. If you know something about this week's song that we didn't get to in our discussion, or you want to be on a future episode, you can find me here. You can find me on Twitter at StrangeKateCast, on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Kate Bush Podcast, on the web at KBCast.LinkMedia.com, let's link with a knee, or you can email me KBCast at LinkMedia.com. We also have a hotline. You can call 757-349-6886. That's 1-757-349-6886. And your message could be played on a future episode. Speaking of episodes, join us next week where we're continuing into the second side of the dreaming with Night of the Swallows. See everybody then. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.